Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The Word of God that calls for our attention this morning comes to us from the prophet Amos, chapter 7, verse 8. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. So far our text. You may remember what seems like an awful long time ago, especially seeing that we just got done with vacation Bible school. In Lent, we did a sermon series through the prophet Amos. And our reading this morning was actually read over the span of two weeks. Yet we never covered this portion of the reading. We covered the portion of the locust before this reading, and then the latter half of the judgment against Jeroboam both of which we'll touch on briefly this morning. But what I want to focus our attention on this morning is the third vision that God gives in his series of visions for Amos. The plumb line set up against the wall. But first, what is a plumb line? Now, those of you who do any sort of carpentry or masonry work, you understand the plumb line is that nice rock or piece of metal or whatever that stands at the end of a line to show that the wall is straight. And that's exactly what God shows Amos this morning. He's standing beside a wall with the plumb line next to it. And most commentators will say, even though it's not in the actual text of Amos, that the wall is completely out of plumb with the line. And God says, this is my people Israel. They do not measure up. But do you measure up to the plumb line of God's word? Well, of course you don't. Neither do I. No one measures up to the plumb line. And God tells Amos with this plumb line, I will never again pass by them. And the question in English becomes, what does God mean by this? Because it sounds like God's never coming and visiting his people again. But in the, in the Hebrew, the phrase for pass again, or the pass by is, could be better translated spared. That God has already spared Israel a number of times, but now the judgment is coming where he will not spare them. And in the beginning of Amos chapter 7, we have God sparing them once again. God promising a plague of locusts to completely ravage the land. Amos intercedes for the people, and God spares them. Then God is getting ready to call down fire from heaven, much like He did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Amos once again intercedes for the people, and God spares them from the fire. But the plumb line is the final and most devastating judgment against his people. And he says, with that, the high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. All the places up on the hills and up under the trees that they have made altars to worship Baal and Asherah and Molech and the sun, the moon and the stars and everything else they could think of to worship except the true God. All of those places would be made desolate. 
He says, also the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. The sanctuaries at Dan and Bethel, where Jeroboam I had built his golden calves, saying, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt, very much like Aaron at the foot of Mount Sinai. Those also will be laid waste. And this is what gets Amos in trouble. He says, I will, God says, I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And there's a couple of different ways you can take this phrase. Because which Jeroboam? Which house? Because Amos is prophesying in the days of King Jeroboam II, which automatically assumes that there was Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I was the first king of the northern kingdom after the two split. So is it talking about the whole kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes? Or is it actually talking about the house and the lineage of Jeroboam II, the current king? It could be either one. Because Samaria, the capital city of Israel, will fall in about 40 years after Amos speaks these words. But Jeroboam's son, Zechariah, will be assassinated six months into his reign, ending that dynasty that began with Jeroboam's grandfather, Jehu, fulfilling the prophecy by God that none of the northern kingdom's dynasties would last past the fourth generation. And Jeroboam was the third, so his son would be the fourth. Now that gets Amos into a little bit of trouble. But what really gets him into the boiling water is saying that the house of Jeroboam, that God will rise up against it with the sword. The chief priest at Bethel named Amaziah spins it. Now we think spin doctors were invented in the 20th century with TV marketing. But 8th century B.C. Israel had their own spin doctors. He spins it to say Jeroboam shall die by the sword. That Amos is getting ready to lead some insurrection and revolt against the king and kill him. But 2 Kings 14 tells us that Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel. That Jeroboam dies a natural death. But still, the blood of Jeroboam starts boiling against Amos anyway because of the bad words that he was saying against him. Especially that Israel must go into exile away from his land. Again, as I said a moment ago, the kingdom would be conquered within 40 years, and Israel would go. But here, at least, Amaziah quotes Amos properly, that Israel must go. There is no other choice. They fall well short of the plumb line. And every king that has come since Jeroboam I has tilted them further and further away till really by the time that the Assyrians come, the wall's basically laying flat on the ground instead of standing up perpendicular. So what does all this mean for us? Well, as we go to St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, as we begin reading it this week, Paul tells us God works all things according to the counsel of His will. 
Even the bad things, like Jeroboam's and Zechariah's deaths, Israel going into exile, even John the Baptist beheading by King Herod. All these things, as bad as they are, are still serving the purpose that God does. What that purpose is normally isn't readily seen in the moment. But Paul will later say to the church in Rome, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Paul says all things work together for good. Not all the good things, but all things work together. So what is it that's good that God is bringing about? Well, first of all, it's Amos giving the people one last chance for repentance. One last chance to be straightened up to the plumb line of God's word. But knowing it's a fruitless task because they won't come back into line. And so we see ourselves also. We're also slightly askewed. Some of us more slightly than others, depending on the day. So what can you do to get back into plumb with God's Word? Well, first of all, don't act like Jeroboam, Amaziah, or Herod. Jeroboam and Amaziah wanted nothing to do with all the harsh words and the bad news Amos was giving them. They liked how we started off the psalm this morning. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people. And this is what was going on for Amaziah and all the other priests and all the prophets that wanted nothing more than to be in the king's good graces. They spoke peace. Even when there was no peace. A century later, Jeremiah would have the same thing. He would be tortured and tormented by the priest of Jerusalem for the same thing. They wanted to hear that we're God's people. He chose us. So nothing bad can happen to us. We know how false that statement is. We know the bad things that can happen to God's chosen people. We know that being a Christian is not all sunshine and roses. We know that there are the bad days. And we accept the bad days, knowing that God even works them for our good, somehow. But what about Herod? Herod is really more like people today. He gladly heard John's preaching. He was enthralled by John's preaching, but did nothing with it. As we get into the gospel reading and the recounting of John the Baptist beheading, we have Herod being painted in kind of this multiple shades of gray. Lighter gray in that he gladly heard John and possibly would even go to the prison where he was sitting and would listen to him preach. Greatly perplexed he was by the preaching 
but he gladly heard it. Maybe John was an eloquent speaker. Maybe John just had a way of saying things that caused people to think. But what did Herod do with it? Nothing. He would just leave after John was done speaking, go back to living life as normal. Tell many people in our world today, how even many Christians are today. It's like, yep, okay, I'm here, 9 o'clock, Sunday morning, all right. I've checked that hour off my list. Now I'm going to go live my life for the other 167 hours in the week. And the two are completely disjointed. And Herod faces that disjointing head on, that plumb line being laid right in the midst of his palace. As he is there, forced to behead John the Baptist, the man that he gladly heard and wanted to protect, but he had backed himself into a corner and couldn't do it anymore. So don't act like them. Act like what David would have us in the psalm. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. One of the great slogans of the last five years in all of the presidential talking has been make, make America great again. Now, whether you voted for Trump or not, I don't care. But the idea is there, that we want glory in our land. And how do we get it? We go by seeking the salvation of the Lord. Because there's not a single person who will be able to take care of bringing the glory back to his land again. Because all we do is make it worse. Just like the kingdom of Israel. Every king, no matter how good they started out, would end up making things just a little bit worse. We go after his salvation knowing that it is near to those who fear him. Those who hold him. Not just as, well, God has a great way of talking. And sometimes in the Bible, He has great sound bites that we can use and put on bumper stickers and all that. Okay, that's great. But actually, fearing is listening and taking those words to heart and acting upon them. Because the psalm also says, Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away as we'll look in Bible class this morning at the conversion of Saul, we have him talking about going out and finding people and imprisoning them who were known as the way. Because that's what the Christians were called. Following after Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life. The Psalms also say that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Giving us the direction we should go. Showing us that in Him we have redemption. Not through the great words that He said, even though He said many great things, but through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses are not because Jesus had some great things to say. It's because Jesus put Himself on the plumb line. Had Himself straightened out. Not because he needed it, but because you and I need it. And it's only in the plumb line of his cross 
that He has put in the middle of His people. That we have the forgiveness of our sins. That our wall can be straightened back up to where we are right with God once again. Because in Him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit at the font when the sign of the cross is made upon your forehead and upon your heart, marking you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Marking you as one whose sins have been forgiven. Marking you as one who has the inheritance of heaven. And the guarantee of that inheritance, that notary stamp on the will, is the Holy Spirit being given to you. Sanctifying you in the truth. Calling you by the gospel so that you may see your inheritance and follow after Him. Looking to Him to straighten out your wall because you know that you can't. And rejoicing that He does, in fact, straighten that wall in His grace and mercy. Amen.